Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday y'all as you say we made it <laughs> we made it <laughs> yes indeed oh, a lot of stuff going on we got to get to on the program today Senator, State Senator Angela Hill joins us at 1035. She represents District 40, serves as the chair of the County Affairs Committee and the vice chair of the Accountability, Efficiency, and Transparency Committee. So we'll get an update from the senator on the outlook for the coming legislative session right around the corner. Those wily legislators will be assembling up in the Capitol under the dome to make some laws. There's already been a little bit of official business. What's that? They had the new members' orientation yesterday. Correct. Correct. I also um, visited with a couple of supervisors earlier this week. Apparently they had an orientation, I believe, Wednesday as well. Tell them how to supervise, I reckon, huh? The ins and outs of the day-to-days. I got you. Or something like that. You know, a lot of government occurs at that level, at the county level, five per county, right? Isn't that the the structure? Is it five or seven supervisors? I have to think about it. It's a bunch of them. I think it's five. Or does it differ county to county? I thought it was the same. now that you said two different numbers, they both sound right. Yeah. Somebody out there knows. Uh, I don't know why I'm thinking it's... Uh, Maybe it's based on population. I honestly don't know. Hadn't looked at that. But it's a bunch of them, and it's a bunch of government that happens at that level. Five in every county, uh, a friend just texted me. I think that's correct. That's what I thought. What a thunk. I want to say that that structure was changed some time ago to make it consistent. But nonetheless, well, five in every county... That's a bunch. That'd be over 400 in our state that are involved in governing at the county level. A bunch of that stuff happens. Digressing a bit, 
A lot of news overnight. Uh, Chris from Oxford already. Yeah, Dave says every county has five beats. Each beat has its own supervisor. That's correct. Thank you for that, Dave, on the ceasefire text line. Uh, Chris from Oxford, do you think Hunter's trials can get pushed back far enough where his dad will be out of office and cannot pardon him? A question from Chris. And if he can't get pardoned, he's going to be in a sweetheart federal prison. And when Trump gets back into office, will Trump be able to move him to a more suitable prison like El Chapo's prison in California? All good questions. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, Chris. I do think that it's about time, that Hunter's got big old problems, federal tax evasion. I mean, it's not like he didn't have the money to pay these taxes now that investigations have revealed that he spent it on vacations and luxury amenities, if you will, alcohol, etc. He got problems in, in fact, nine Nine criminal charges in the federal tax case. And the best part about this deal is that, in my view, it vindicated the whistleblower's testimony. Everything they said concerning this guy's tax situation is true. And it is coming to light now and manifesting in this lawsuit. Special counsel says that Hunter Biden engaged in a four-year scheme to not pay at least $1.4 million in taxes for the years 2016 through 2019. Got to make a pretty chunk, of, pretty big chunk of change to owe over a million in taxes. Correct. Now, I'll tell you what sent me into orbit. If you'll indulge me for a moment here. And this is stuff that we talk about a lot on the program. Back in 2021, I know that's been a minute, President Joe Biden on his official POTUS Twitter account, I'm reading here, I'm looking at the tweet, it's time for the wealthy to pay their fair share. You don't say... You mean like your son? You? Uh, Nine new charges filed in the state of California because that is his residence and where the income was earned. So that's correct venue. Four-year scheme? Scheme. Scheme equals unlawful tax evasion. Not to be confused with lawful tax avoidance. Gosh, if Dr. Milam didn't say that a thousand times in a three-month federal tax course when I was in school, it it had a good chance of being that because he said it all the time. I'm telling you, he just drilled it into your head as an accounting student. Evasion avoidance. Looking for every possible tax write-off is avoidance. And perfectly legal. Making up your own is evasion. And in this case, a scheme to evade your federal tax liability. You can't write off the hooker bill on your taxes. (laughs) Imagine that. He sure as hell tried. Oh, gosh. So I got a proposal. There should be a tax on hypocrisy. The Biden family don't got enough money to pay that, do they? 
It's so maddening. It's time for the wealthy to pay their fair share. I'm just unbelievable. What planet is this guy on? He knew this was going on. You can't convince me other, otherwise. He participated in it. He was enriched through it. And it does look like the House is inching closer to an impeachment proceeding of the president. But I think Hunter has got big problems. To your, to your question, Chris, what I hope is, is that due process occurs in a reasonable period of time. I, I can't see, honestly, what kind of stone walls they're going to put up, but lawyers are creative now when it comes to that sort of stuff. But the fact that this is consistent with the testimony from the whistleblowers, who, as we know, are not far-right MAGA extremist Trump supporters by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, quite the opposite. But they're just doing their job and telling the truth. And I praise them for it. We need more people like that in government who are politically agnostic when it comes to the law and the truth. That's the way it should be. And the only question I have, honestly, is what took you so dang long? It's not like this wasn't clear and evident, but if it's because you were trying to build, from the prosecution perspective, an ironclad case, okay, I get that. Should it have taken five years? I don't know. But I think he's got big old problems. It's a 56-page indictment. It asserts that the president's son subverted, I'm quoting, subverted the payroll and tax withholding process of his own company by withdrawing millions of dollars outside of its payroll and tax withholding process. Now, I can, I can say that if you're a private company and you make cash distributions to ownership, equity owners, out of uh, just out of cash holdings, as a balance sheet transaction, what would be considered dividends, essentially, perfectly legal. And that is done outside of payroll and the withholding process because those are retained earnings on which... Taxes have already been paid. That's a different scenario, and I know that gets a little into the weeds of accounting and tax stuff, but what Hunter did is not that. He was evading taxes on income. That's different. The president's son spent, according to the indictment, millions of dollars on an extravagant lifestyle rather than paying his tax bills. He spent it on money. I spent it, pardon me. He spent the money on drugs, escorts, and girlfriends, as you just alluded. Luxury hotels and rental properties, exotic cars, clothing, and other items of a personal nature. Sounds to me like he's wealthy and he ain't paying his fair share there, Dad. We're stepping aside for a break again. Senator Angela Hill at 10:35. Check it out. Let's do this. The 
talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Some people call me the space cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the gangster of love. Some people call me Maurice. Because I speak of the pompatus of love. The great Steve Miller band bumping us into this segment of middays. It is State Senator Angela Hill in the next segment on Middays. And then at 11.20, it's Alyssa Arbuckle, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. Give us a rundown of all the news from across the Magnolia State. So uh, something else, uh, uh, Chris, who asked earlier from Oxford, hey, do you think that the president would pardon his son, I do recall that White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, I think it was a couple of months ago, uh, was asked the question concerning uh, some charges that he's been indicted on, right, dealing with uh, felony gun possession, as I recall. And she said, no, the president would not. Should he be convicted? That's what she said, would not pardon his son, uh, the other thing that bugs me is that both Joe Biden and the White House press secretary have repeatedly told the American people that he had no idea what his son's business interests were. I, I just have a hard time accepting that is truth. I really do. I, I um, I'm suspicious, shall we say. The New York Post, by the way. <laughs> They're great with the covers, and always kind of, kind of bombastic, kind of sizzly. And it's got a photo today of Hunter, and he's got two of his his girlfriends. I don't even know what to call them. His um, I think escorts is the nice way to say okay, it. Okay, escorts. Uh, they, he's got his arms around two of them who were dressed in robes with their faces pixelized. He He's shirtless, not on shorts. You know, the big, bold, block letters shadowed that they use in their headlines. Wild child, that's all it says. That would be appropriate, I would say. Let's call them companions. How about that? It's a couple of companions. Paid companions. Exactly. Uh, so I think he gets, as I recall, 17 years if he's convicted. But here's what I think. I think we're going to learn as part of this legal proceeding a whole lot more. I think this guy's going to start talking, and it's going to lead to – further investigation into all sorts of other aspects of the president's son's life that could be even further damning from a legal perspective. I just think the guy's done a lot of bad stuff. And unfortunately, he has a father who's 
both in denial about it and trying to detach himself from any of his son's wrongdoing. I mean, if you if you want to put on the tinfoil hat for a second and spin it out of recognition, what if? And remember, this is tinfoil hat territory. I don't really believe this. I'm just playing around because it's Friday. <laughs> what if President Biden refuses to pardon his son so that any time he tries to speak up against what he knows about the president, it'll be discredited? That's true. I think that's a plausible theory. Uh, but it's a bit a bit tin foily it's hatty. It's a bit out there. <laughs> oh, you remember earlier this week, three presidents of prestigious universities, aren't they something? Like eight thousand degrees among among the three of the collection of them on the hill, testifying about anti-Semitism activity on their respective campuses. They didn't do very well. I didn't think. Let's see. Represented were the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and University of Pennsylvania. Have they all walked it back now? Well, you... I haven't seen video, but I keep seeing everybody talking about it. I have seen video. I personally thought what they might consider as an apology, pathetic. I'll start with... And by the way, they were questioned uh, very efficiently and expertly by Representative Elise Stefanik, the Republican from New York, whom I said yesterday, I think, is going to be Trump's running mate. And I've seen nothing to suggest that. It's just a, just an opinion. Well, the president of University of Pennsylvania, she did create a video I guess you could say, walking back, this would be Liz McGill. And in the video, she did say, I should have responded differently to question. And the simple question was, from Representative Stefanik, do students and, and others on campus calling for the genocide, intifada, essentially, of the Jewish people an eradication of the nation of Israel, does that violate your code of conduct policies? And she gave the old party line, depends on the context. What if you'd ask the question, if there are protests on your campus calling for the genocide of African Americans, black people, would that violate the code of conduct? If I'm not wrong, if you address somebody with the wrong pronoun, you could be expelled all of a sudden. Which I saw a workaround on the Internet for all that nonsense if it happens in the workplace. What's that? If you are in an office space or in a workplace of any type and you have a a trans individual that is trying to, to instigate with the whole pronoun thing, just always refer to them as my esteemed colleague. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and if they question you, well, you are my colleague, and I hold you in esteem. I love it. So these far-left institutions that have invested mightily in all this DEI stuff and created all these pronoun guides and language guides and safe spaces and 
and created all these little focus groups and stuff, all of a sudden now they've become strict constitutionalists. And they're, <laughs> right, and, and they're strong, fierce defenders of the First Amendment. Oh, all of a sudden now you are. Is that not just the most double standard hypocrisy you've ever seen? It, it's it the only me. time you will ever see the left point to any founding documents or statutes or laws or rules or anything. The only time they appeal to authority instead of trying to tear it down is when their own side turns against them. No doubt about it. So she said that in her apology, she said something to the effect that, yeah, if somebody says something like that, uh, that's like the worst sort of harm and evil that could be perpetrated uh, by humans. And I'm paraphrasing a bit, but that's essentially what she said. Um, but she said, you know, I, I, I wasn't focused. What do you mean you weren't focused? That's not a hard question. It was a very simple yes or no question. And, in fact, Representative Stavonix even interrupted, said, hey, it's it's a yes or no question. And she got she got a bit belligerent with it, and Gave she should. each one of them multiple times to correct their statement on the record, and they didn't take the opportunity. Wouldn't do it. So she... Um, because the left has tied itself in knots over who has the high ground of victimhood. No doubt. They have decided that's exactly right. It's not a matter of, of of just blindly deeming what is in defining what is good and what is bad anymore. It, it depends on who the perpetrator is and who the victim is, right? That's what matters. She said, I was not focused on, but I should have been. The irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. What do you mean you're not focused on it? You're sitting in a official meeting before the United States Congress and you're not focused? And you got 8,000 degrees? You got hired as a university president of what is supposed to be one of the most prestigious, one of the greatest business schools, if not the best on the planet, the Wharton School. But I tell you what, they got a donor, and we'll get to this later on, the program says, so much for that hundred mil I was about to give you, a hundred million. You're a university president, top of your list is raising money. You alienated a donor who's about to write you a check for a hundred million. You need to resign today. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well Studio. State Senator Angela Hill is next. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one.
Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We are live today in the Element Well Studio. We thank you so much for joining us, and we welcome to the program State Senator Angela Hill, represents District 40, serves as the chair of the County Affairs Committee and vice chair of Accountability, Efficiency, and Transparency Committee. Senator Hill, welcome to Middays. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Glad to be here, Gerard. All right, so let's. Uh, I know we got the legislative session about to get underway here in less than a month. Let's recap uh, some of your accomplishments uh, legislatively, uh, particularly in the last session. I know you had a focus on animal abuse, something you've been championing for some time, finally got something through. Uh, first, tell us about that, and then uh, to that end, just uh, yesterday, I believe, right, an arrest of a dogfighting ring, some 29 canines, in Panola County. Yeah, our dogfighting statute is really strong. That that statute was updated in 2018 to make it even stronger. And if you're involved in dogfighting in the state of Mississippi, if you have equipment to fight dogs, if you're a spectator at a dogfight, if you possess or own or any have any of the paraphernalia for dogfighting, you, you can get charged with a felony. And so I want all our law enforcement officers across the state, before you go on a scene where you have a suspected dogfight, just know that you have the state statute behind you to arrest anybody on that property. Because if they're there, if, just, if they're on that property and they're about to fight dogs or, or started fighting dogs or preparing to fight dogs, anybody on that property um, can go to jail. So it's a huge problem still. Um, it takes a depraved individual to do this to animals for for profit or for for kicks or whatever, but um, they need to go to jail. Unbelievable. And so, to your knowledge, Senator, has anybody been arrested and convicted and and sentenced to jail under these statutes? I think, yeah, I think one case comes to mind in Natchez. Um, a while back. But yes, there, there have been some arrests and some convictions, I believe, you know, because like I said, our dog fighting law was strong even before 2018. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Senator DeBar and maybe Senator Deary and some more of them worked on making it even stronger where you put all that paraphernalia language in there. So if they, you know, if they have all the paraphernalia to fight, um, you know, that's, that's grounds for, um, considering them, you know, yeah. for, and the the things that I got passed after Lieutenant Governor Hoseman came into the the Senate, um, the first year we got this animal cruelty law upgraded because prior to uh, you know that year you could basically set a dog on fire or a cat on fire or chop their head off in front of a police officer and they could only charge them with a misdemeanor. Yeah. And no matter how many dogs were or cats were you know somebody was committing aggravated cruelty you know this heinous type stuff we could only charge one count so thankfully mm. we got this passed to where now law, law enforcement can charge a count for each animal whether it's simple or aggravated cruelty and if you're committing aggravated cruelty even if it's a first offense you can get a felony and, and you know some prosecutors just won't go 
as far as they need to to do something with the, with these people. But there have been some arrests and and court dates all over the state since we've upgraded this law. Then we got Buddy's law passed. It basically said if you're you know if it's a kid in youth court that's that's under the age to charge as an adult, they're going to get mandatory psychiatric evaluation and counseling and try to figure out you know what's wrong to to cause a small child, a child under twelve. 12 or under to act out in this manner against a dog or cat. So hopefully that will stop some future serial killers, um, you know, because the hope is that we can save the child that's going in this direction by, by getting them some help and also yeah. you know, save the animals too. Well, I think it's all... We all, we all know that Luke Woodham started with his dog and his mother. Yeah, Luke Woodham, of course, for those that uh, don't remember... Um, he was the, the one that committed uh, some serious serial type uh, cruelty, um, mm-hmm. yeah, crimes, and yeah, he's kind of well known for that. Unfortunately, yeah, um, you know the, the Pearl High School shooting will never will never be forgotten in Mississippi, yeah. and, and you know um, when you look at the statistics, pretty much every serial killer starts out. You know, with animals. With animals. FBI yeah. has those statistics out there. The National Society of District Attorneys has those statistics out there. So that's what we're looking at. Um, and you know, now that those have gotten a felony for aggravated cruelty, now at least they have a record so that when they want to go to apply in a nursing home or a daycare, um, something will pop up in their background if they've been convicted for aggravated cruelty to an animal because mm. I don't want them around my grandma or my grandkids. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer, I think, as well had a history of that before yep. he went on his, his rampage. And, and pretty much every one of these school and church shooters that we've had in recent years, if yeah. you go deep back in their background, you can find it. Because I, I did a lot of you know searching on some of these school shooters and church shooters, and you can pretty much find animal cruelty in, in all their backgrounds. And, and that's, you know, it's a key element to predict their future behavior. Well, it's good legislation. I think it's good law, and we appreciate that. We want none of the sort in the state of Mississippi. Appreciate that. Let's talk about the, um, the upcoming session. What's on your radar? What are you going to be working on? Well, you know, I'm extremely concerned that the legislative branches, both in in Washington, D.C. and in the states, basically their power has been minimized by both state rulemaking and federal rulemaking. And that's done, you know, through the Administrative Procedures Act. And then sometimes they don't even go through that. They just, you know, pass the rule, put it in the federal register or whatever. So the Biden administration is basically ruling the country right now and ruling the states through these federal agencies and federal rulemaking because once they pass those rules, they're enforced just like they were a law or a statute. Mm -hmm. And the same way in state agencies. And and that's how we lose our freedoms when those things come through the back door through federal or state rulemaking and don't go through the legislative bodies, but yet they're enforced with the same power. They can fine you if you violate it. They can take you to court. So, you know, I've passed, I have been filing bills for a couple years to require our state agencies or boards or whomever commissions to basically email the lawmakers. If you're putting out a rule for, for public comment that you're trying to, to get passed in your public body, if you're going to send that out to the Secretary of State for public comment to make a, to, to make it and put it into your rule book, we at least need to be notified in the legislature because we don't go and check the Secretary of State's website every day to see who's putting out a rule um, that will eventually, you know, hold the, the force of law. And, you know, if we don't, if we don't know what's happening, many times it'll pass and get put in without, without our knowledge or our comment. So 
I think it's just a good, simple, transparent bill that if these bodies are going to make rules that are enforced like law, you at least need to email your legislators and let us look at it and see if we need to weigh in on what you're doing in these agencies. Um, because, like I said, you know, you get we this rulemaking authority was given to these bodies a long time ago before I ever got elected, and so they're they're calling all the shots or most of the shots a lot of times without even going through the legislature. And the Biden administration is basically putting its foot on the throat of the states with all their transgender agenda, um, anti-parental rights through the Safer Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Um, they're rulemaking through the Department of Education, the Department of Human Services basically trying to make every state like Gavin Newsom's got California to where, you know, they want to put all these uh, services, mental health and otherwise, into the school systems. And they want the the parents to not even be notified, um, you know, and they want to be able to have full control of the kids. And, And that sounds like it's over the top, but just look at it. It's absolutely true. That's what they're doing. And they can target red states just like the blue states are doing and try to make us comply because they threaten our funds and put these rules through. So that's my concern is the states need to push back. And if it's something that the federal government does that that violates our conscience or violates the Constitution or violates our state statute, parental rights or otherwise, then we don't need to comply. I mean, the Tenth Amendment says that we do what what we do that's not reserved to the federal government. You know, if the federal government is not explicitly called out in the Constitution to do something, then those powers are reserved for the states. And and, and they're just basically buying the states off and making us have, you know, no authority over what goes on if we continue in that direction. Have you uh, presented this proposal to the lieutenant governor and your colleagues in the Senate? Uh, I'm not sure what committee that would flow through, but well, uh, whoever that Bill, might be that. The bill that I had, just to simply email notification to the legislators for our agencies, was it was in accountability. It was in my committee that okay. I'm vice chair of, okay. and this never seemed to get enough traction to get it taken up. Sometimes the hmm. things that make the most sense, and they're the simplest things that are just common sense, are the ones that, that they don't get taken up because there's no lobbyists up there. Yeah. You know, we might represent 55, 59,000 people, but but a lobbyist, unfortunately, can get the attention sometimes more than we can. But I do believe that once people stop and think about it, including the lieutenant governor, who may not even be privy to, to this bill, I think they will they will think it's a good idea. we got a break right now, but if you can hang around, we got a short segment left, uh, and we can keep talking. Sure. We got Senator Angela Hill on the line with us. It's middays. We're in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Coming right back with the Senator. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, it's middays. We're visiting with State Senator Angela Hill. So, Senator, uh, coming up in the next session, what I'm hearing a lot out there from Mississippians is 
is they want to see some work on some form of tax reform, and that ranges anywhere from uh, reducing or elimination elimination of the sales tax on groceries to, I know, the governor's priority of fully eliminating the income tax. We've sort of made what I call a down payment on income tax elimination by uh, reducing ultimately over the next three years uh, uh, to a one single flat tax bracket of, of 4%, having already eliminated the 4% bracket, the 3% bracket. Uh, that's in the rearview mirror, and then the 5% would come down to 4 It's a big issue. What do you think about that in the coming session? I think it's a great idea to continue reducing the state income tax. Um, I, I have no qualms about reducing the grocery tax either, but you have to realize that a lot of the money that the cities run on are coming from the grocery tax. Mm-hmm. Um, they get 18.5% back in sales tax revenue um, that's spent in the cities, and a lot of, you know, Walmarts and Kroger's and all these, you know, uh, grocery stores that are in the cities, um, the amount of food that's bought and sales tax paid on the foods is, is going back to those cities. So, um, that cities would probably take a, a pretty good hit as far as um, tax revenue on groceries. We'd have to figure out what to do to keep them from raising property taxes if they lose that. And I haven't looked at how much, you know, would be designated food taxes to each city. I haven't seen those numbers. It might not be as big as I think it is. But that would be a concern as to how that would affect cities. Um, now, if the state eliminated the income tax, that has nothing to do with your local governments or how they run. That would just be a state issue, and the state the state would have to, you know, figure out how that revenue would be regenerated. And typically, what we saw with all the stimulus money that was put into the to the country through COVID and and all this infrastructure stuff, we saw our sales tax collections be extremely high. Uh, we saw our casino revenue taxes be extremely high. Mm-hmm. So typically, if people have more money to spend, if inflation does not continue to go, you know, out of control, if we kind of can get stabilized, I think you would see people spend a whole lot more if they had more of their income tax money in their pocket, and therefore you get you probably get a pretty good bit more sales tax revenue to replace some of that loss. Yeah, so I think that's going to be uh, an issue that will certainly be debated, and it's going to come up uh, probably originating, I would think, in the House. Uh, Let's talk about the citizen ballot initiative process, something that uh, at this point we don't have in the state of Mississippi. hear that all the time from the folks that they'd like to see that restored. Your thoughts? Well, and my my thoughts are the, the most ignorant thing that we could do it's put the ballot initiative exactly like it was back into the law to where you could you could amend the constitution um, and put unlimited amounts of, con- of of information or changes into the constitution with only 21 were up to 21 words on the ballot yeah that was our old ballot initiative and everybody complains about legislators passing laws like you know Nancy Pelosi you got to find you got to <laughs> pass it to see what's in it mm-hmm. so i don't think we need a, a ballot initiative restored that you got to pass it to see what's in it when yeah. up to 21 words would be on the ballot but yet you can put unlimited pages into the constitution i think that you know i could i could tolerate something that that required the actual citizens to read what they were voting on yeah. A couple of minutes left. Uh, PERS is something we've talked a lot about here. You know that's uh, been a buzz somewhat at the Capitol, certainly uh, since the last session ended. The PERS board, uh, folks involved in, in in those matters at the Capitol have been working with them. What do you think? Well, 
you know, we know that long term it's unsustainable as it is. Um, you know, I've made a commitment for people that are vested or already retired to 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 not, you know, upset their apple cart for what they've already planned for their future on. But but the people that are coming in or that aren't vested, there's going to have to be some changes because the cost of living adjustment that's given every year that compounds upon itself mm-hmm. over and over and over. If, back when Haley Barber did the study on PERS, that amount that the PERS was going into the red each year was pretty much equal to that COLA payout. And you do get to the point to where, you know, as you need less and less people to perform tasks and you get more technology and things, you can get upside down. You have more people um, that you're paying out than people that are putting in from the bottom. And so it's a complex situation, but I, I think it's something that has to be has to be looked at because, you know, how long can the state keep putting money in there to cover the um, cities and the schools and all the the employer costs whenever the employer portion, yeah. you know, PERS is saying you got to raise that employer portion higher and higher to, to make ends meet, and they don't want to raise the employee contribution. And the state has to keep eating that money over and over and over. Yeah. Senator, appreciate uh, your insight and for joining us today, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you some more. And if nothing else, uh, we'll see you at the Capitol. And between now and then, have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays. Gerard, thanks for having me. You bet. We're coming right back, folks. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. Don't forget Alyssa Arbuckle, multimedia journalist with Super Talk Mississippi News at 1120. Your home for get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of middays. We are live in the Element Well studio on this Friday, y'all. Today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with singer-songwriter Melina Cadiz. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish with homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name or at your favorite store or restaurant. And go to Super Superior catfish.com for more info. We're going to be doing a couple of remotes last week. Uh, we're going to, uh, pardon me, next week. We're going to be at Mississippi Blood Services on Lakeland Boulevard in the Flowood next Tuesday. Help Mississippi Blood Services celebrate the season of giving. Give blood now through December 16th to receive a holiday t-shirt sponsored by Priority One Bank. The best gift this holiday can't be found under a tree. Donate today. And then next Friday, we're down at Corner Market, right, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The Sports Talk guys, they're going to be up at Stone's Jewelry in Tupelo next Wednesday. So we got we got remote uh, Tuesday, middays, and then uh, remote for Sports Talk on Wednesday in Tupelo, Stone's Jewelry, and then middays is on a remote again, on assignment, 
down there in Hattiesburg at Corner Market. It's Christmas time, and we're on the road a little bit. So on the C Spire text line, Jen from Oxford asks, how will the reduction in state income tax affect annual raises for state employees? So, Jen, there's not – it's impossible to answer that question directly, and I'm not trying to avoid it. Please understand. It is a good one, and I know that state employees have have been clamoring for an increase. Uh, I think, Rhino, you would agree with that. We hear that quite a bit from uh, the public. The teachers, of course, got a pretty big – uh, increase a couple of years ago through some rather sweeping legislation to that effect. So here's the deal. We, uh, we're we producing fairly tidy surpluses is uh, our state. I applaud our state for fiscal restraint and responsible spending. That doesn't mean that there are not opportunities to to uh, get even more efficient with our spending. Of course, there always are, and that's something you work on continuously. Never stop. should never be satisfied when there are always opportunities, especially something as big and sweeping and uh, just broad as uh, state government uh, spending is and just the agency complex and all the other aspects of government. But back to the question, income tax elimination or reduction or any reduction of revenue is only possible if you're still able to produce sufficient revenue to cover expenses. And that means looking forward, projected revenues, projected expenses. And so any sort of increases of expenses have to also, any consideration of that, also has to include thoughtful consideration and contemplation of of what what would our revenue picture look like. So, uh, you know, they've been meeting already. State leaders at least attempted to meet and and uh, draft a budget for fiscal year uh, twenty five. Keep in mind, we're already in fiscal year twenty four, which would end June thirtieth of twenty four next year. So we're we're four months into the year. At, uh, at this point, in terms of what's been reported already. Uh, and and here's where we are, just so you'll know, the uh, Legislative Budget Office just released information through October. So that's uh, four months. So it's a quarter and, and uh, a month. We started the fiscal year July 1. So for the first four months of the year, fiscal year to date, $75 million bucks over the estimate. So the the legislature estimates, working with the Legislative Budget Office, estimates revenue, estimates expenses in advance, and um, it, it fairly well in advance, honestly. Like I said, they've been working, and I say at least attempting to work, because they haven't all been able to get together and uh, get something done that they agree to. For fiscal year 25. Now, that doesn't start until next July 1. But year-to-date, over the estimate, $75 million, $75 million bucks through October. For the month of October, $10 million under estimate. And then relative to the prior year, $52 million less in revenue year-to-date through the month of October 23. 
verses through the month of October 22. So the the trend is down relative to prior year, but um, it's up relative to what was projected. So all that means is that when the legislature and, and state leaders and the LBO projected revenue, the fact that we're above it, they projected conservatively. The fact that it is below prior year, I think, is just a reflection of... Uh, and the same thing's happening, by the way, with respect to spending and the broader economy in the entire nation. It's it's kind of a filtering through of all the excess COVID money. The money supply was boosted dramatically, especially in 2020, the big COVID year, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump's final year in office, uh, a couple of gigantic COVID relief bills and lots of um, money printing and bond buying by the Federal Reserve. All of that just injected lots of cash into the system. I think, Rhino, it just feels like a lot of people, and economists are saying this, by the way, it's not just my independent opinion, that, yeah, folks are starting to see the well run dry with respect to all that money that we dropped out of helicopters. It's uh, starting to flush out. Uh, We have, I think, resumed student loan repayments, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so because of that, uh, that's less money, disposable income to spend. Now, in the meantime, President Joe Biden has been busy forgiving student loans in defiance, in my view, of the Supreme Court ruling that says you can't do that. So it's something in the neighborhood of 180 some odd billion dollars thus far. forgiven so far. This, yeah, yeah, thus far. So, and and uh, run, you've probably seen this running all kinds of promotions. I'm talking about advertising type promotion media. Spots across the media spectrum. Hey, this is how you go apply to get your student loan forgiven. You've seen that. You know, I mean, they're, oh, yeah. they're spending money on that. And I think that's clearly an attempt to, to, uh, to capture those with student loans as voters. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, it literally is buying votes more than anything else. There's no really logical reason. Behind that, there's no practical reason other than that. So back to the question. I, I'm sorry for getting off on a million tangents there, but that, they would have to consider. You know, if we eliminated income taxes, uh, but we wanted to increase the pay of state workers, you know, how does that work? I, I still say that, that, again, as I titled the article, The Elephant in the Room is PERS, is what are the state's obligations there and what is that going to cost? And that has to be figured in to any sort of adjustment in, in revenue. And um, I, I very much i am confident that the legislature is going to address that issue. And uh, I've uh, tried to be consistent in, in asking uh, those whom we interview that serve in our legislature that question. What is your plan? And... I don't expect them to say, oh, yeah, we're going to do this, this, this. And, and what the senator said I think is very reasonable and fairly consistent, I would say, Rhino, with what others have said, is that, yeah, we got to do something, and we've got to address it. it uh, it's going to require some expertise and some input, subject matter experts to, to guide. I, I totally agree, to counsel and, uh, and to make some recommendations. Uh, at the end of the day, what I believe we'll see are – 
uh, is a solution that consists of of uh, multiple actions, whether it's raising rates, uh, as you heard the senator discuss on employers, and of course that is a, a big burden for uh, the local jurisdictions, such as county governments, municipal governments, school districts. They don't they don't get their money for that from the state, and and that concern is, man, are they going to have to go raise ad valorem taxes? car tax, property taxes, in order to cover this additional expense. And you look at that, and, and eliminating the sales tax on groceries, as the senator pointed out, is a significant source of revenue for municipalities. I mean, you put that all in the pot. Same is true with respect to raising state employee pay. All that's got to be figured into the model And that's what they get paid to do down there at the legislature. We're stepping aside for a break. Sticks bumping us out here. Alyssa Arbuckle, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News, is next. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Rolling. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We are live in the Element Well Studios today. We welcome to the program now Alyssa Arbuckle, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. All right, Alyssa, tell us what's going on here in the uh, state of Mississippi. What about this uh, report card? That we just received. Looks like we fared pretty well yeah. there, huh? One out of seven states, actually. Um, wow. Yeah, we were on the top. Super Man. impressive. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we continue to receive uh, accolades and good news on the education front. It's mm-hmm. all good stuff there. Definitely. Uh, Governor Tate Reeves, he sent out a release as well as uh, the Mississippi Department of Education this morning. So uh, it's pretty pressing stuff. Uh, Caleb Sailors, our multimedia journalist, he wrote a really good article about it. Um, if you want to check out more on our website, supertalk.fm. Yeah. Got it. So we were talking earlier about this uh, this dogfighting ring, mm-hmm. right, in DeSoto County, talking mm-hmm. to Senator Angela Hill, who's been a champion of um animal abuse legislation to strengthen our laws against that and the penalties for doing such. What what do we know about that? Yeah, so during this last legislative session, they upped the uh, charges, basically. You get uh, harsher penalties for dogfighting. There's there's been a lot of um, crime going on across the state, actually. Uh, uh, One thing I would like to mention is that we still have two inmates in Mississippi that are on the run. Uh, Mm. That's something I was checking on this morning. Uh, there was one from Gulfport and then another one from Octibaha County um, that was a Memphis man. Hmm. Um, so we had one, uh, another escaped inmate last week that was recovered. We've had a lot of escaped inmates going on. And then there was a dog fighting that happened as well. There's just been a lot of crime going on this week specifically. Wow. 
That's a uh, mm-hmm. little disheartening to hear that sort of stuff going on here in the state of Mississippi. Uh, what else are you guys tracking these days? Um, one thing that I was looking into recently, um, earlier this week uh, on Gallo, uh, we had the Central District Transportation Commissioner, Willie Simmons, come on. I'm, I'm not sure if you heard the interview, yep. but he was calling for a higher fuel tax, yep. um, which he explained basically that since the fuel tax was, you know, all the you know legislation was done three decades ago, the 18 cents that you pay to the state and then the 18 cents that you pay um, to the federal government, uh, the 18 cents for Mississippi hasn't risen since, you know, in the past 30 years. And so uh, he's calling for it to be raised so that more capacity projects can be done across the state. Your roads can be nicer. You have a smoother drive and that overall your car fares a lot better um, in the long run. Um, so he was saying that uh, if, you know, if we raised the fuel tax in this upcoming legislative session, um, then they could use $3 million to, you know, fund these capacity projects and mm. maintenance. Um, but at this time, he said that, you know, the legislation, the legislature, they've been generous enough to give um, funding since, uh, you know, 2018. They decided let's, you know, have a special session and pass all this, you know, extra money uh, for, you know, four different pieces of legislation, one of them being the lottery fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that, you know, like $80 million of that has really come and ha- come in handy um, with keeping the state, you know, looking good and, you know, the roads being nice, but uh, a higher fuel tax, you know, you might have to pay more at the pump, but uh, your wheels are going to be better. <laughs> your rims are going to be better. Uh, suspension, all that stuff. So that's what he's advocating for. Um, right now for this upcoming legislative session. Mississippi has the second lowest Mm -hmm. in the nation of the 50 states. Only Alaska has a lower uh, uh, gas tax rate at 14.66 cents. Uh, Mississippi's is, I think, Mm 18.79. So we rank uh, 49th in terms of having the – or put us at the top. We'll say we have the second lowest. How about that? That sounds a little better. That's nice. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Try to put a positive spin on it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if you look at other states like California where it is 66.98 cents, which is why you always see the price of gas considerably higher in California. Florida, by the way, a lot of folks look at Florida as a state with a a very positive tax climate, 42 cents. Mm-hmm. It's uh, two uh, two point x more than Mississippi's in the state of Florida, forty two point uh, two six cents per mm-hmm. gallon. So, all right, what uh, what else is going on here in the state of Mississippi? Another thing that happened uh, that I was looking into was the uh, budget recommendation for the upcoming legislative session that starts on January second. So we're really getting close to it. Um, usually, uh, lawmakers with the um, Joint Legislative uh, Budget Committee. They, LBO, uh, yeah. yeah, they usually decide on you know kind of like a recommendation right before the legislative session, kind of so they know what you know they're expecting revenue wise. Mm-hmm. And uh, to my knowledge, they've you know usually decided on that in November. Right. And on Wednesday, that committee met and they adjourned without bringing up the budget. And the primary reason, according to some you know legislators, is because uh, Governor Reeves is still pushing for the elimination of the uh, income tax. It's highest priority. Mm-hmm. And so he was asking for uh, a $113 million increase to what the committee was expecting, which was like $7.5 billion. And he's like, I want that you know, $113 million higher 
so that we can push for that legislation that would eliminate the uh, state income tax. And they were saying, well, we don't know about that yet. Um, but not to worry about the whole budget recommendation. They still have time. Uh, Reeves has to submit um, his EBR, the executive bucket budget recommendation, by January 31st. So they still have a little while before they have to completely adopt that. Um, but Reeves has to agree with uh, that committee for him to be able to put out that EBR. Yep. So they do have to come to an agreement, but they still have time. So that's a really that's some good news. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's it's been a little contentious. They've mm-hmm. had a couple of false starts on trying to get that done, and I think that mainly centers around the fact that the, the governor has made it very clear during yes. his campaign and, and since that elimination of the income tax is a top priority. Now, this mm-hmm. isn't anything new for him. He has been an advocate of that, very strongly so. Uh, while he was uh, governor in the last term, he mm-hmm. made it very clear. Couldn't get that done, got, fell short of that. But he realizes that that uh, our projections with respect to revenue are, are key to uh, kind of giving the, the runway necessary there to enact a tax reform that would eliminate the income tax. So they're mm-hmm. working through all that at this point. Yeah, and uh, just to clarify, the director of the Legislative uh, Budget Office, his name's Tony Greer. Tony Greer, yeah. He is going to retire on December 31st. Now, right. they've known about it for over a year. They've known that he's going to uh, you know, retire. He's been in that position for seven years. Uh, so that's not connected to uh, any kind of disagreements. You know, his retirement is, com- is just you know what has been planned, and they're really thankful for the work that he's done for that office for the past seven years. Yeah, I, I know Tony, and mm-hmm. uh, he's been uh, invaluable, honestly, yeah. in that process. A lot of people don't know, and I, but I'll say it, uh, they burn lots of midnight oil down there, mm-hmm. that LBO does. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, it, they, they have to crunch a lot of numbers in a short period of time, and I think they do a fantastic job. So mm-hmm. congratulations to Tony, and thank mm-hmm. him for all his service. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so we had um, also earlier in the week, I believe it was, we had Representative Trent Kelly explaining why he voted against the removal of Representative George Santos from New York. Of course, uh, Congressman Michael Guest championed that effort as the head of the House Ethics Committee. What do you know about that? Um, I do know that uh, Kelly basically explained that he felt like there wasn't due process mm-hmm. um, on Santos's part. He felt like, you know, the investigation, basically anything that Santos would say would be used against him. And he just didn't feel like it was a fair process. Ne- not necessarily that he wasn't, you know, guilty of doing the things that he did, such as, you know, having, spending money on uh, spa days or an OnlyFans subscription. <laughs> He's not saying that. Um, he's saying that he didn't feel like the process was fair and just and that Santos got to have a, a completely clear, you know, case. So, yeah. um, but guest, he was the forefront of that. Um, but I also know that Benny Thompson also voted for the removal of Santos you know, yeah. as a Democrat. Well, uh, it's a t- it's a tough deal, and, yes. and uh, certainly have to respect the, the uh, decisions. And I, I'm at least pleased that Representative Kelly he stated. Uh, what uh, honestly is a, a, a valid concern, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes they pass these, they, they vote a certain way, and they really can't give you any 
any good rationale for why they vote a certain way, but he made it very clear. Yeah. So I certainly respect him for that. We have a really thorough uh, rundown of that interview as yeah. well online. So if anybody's interested of getting the full rationale behind his vote, um, I highly encourage you to read it. It's very thorough, very well done. It's a good piece, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Alyssa, appreciate you coming in and giving us uh, an update on all the news from across the state of Mississippi. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Yep. Folks, we're stepping aside for a break. It is middays. We're live in the Element Well studio coming right back. Super Talk Mississippi. I have just closed my eyes again. Climbed aboard the dream weaver train. Trying to take away. Gary Wright, Dream Weaver. I can still see him performing the that song live. I think it was on American Bandstand back when you wore the puffy shoulders. You know. <laughs> oh my gosh! I like to watch the old Perry Mason reruns from. Late 50s, early 60s, when the show was popular. And they're always uh, always so dapper. Perry and Paul, of course, they've got the they're slightly oversized coats, ventless, so they kind of hug your rear on the bottom, usually a little long, but the big old shoulders make you look bigger. That's really a well-done show, if you think about it, though, wasn't it? I thought the casting was perfect, storylines are good. I'm not sure how accurately it represented courtrooms of the day, but it was good. Good entertainment. If it's anything like courtroom dramas nowadays, then not at all. (laughs) Not at all. That's true. That is absolutely true. So we've been uh, talking a little bit the last couple of days about these uh, really pathetic testimony up on the Hill by three university presidents about anti-Semitism on their campuses, but they're getting spanked where it hurts. That's in the pocketbook. So a major donor to the University of Pennsylvania, that would be uh, Ross Stevens. He's Stone Ridge Asset Management. He's pulling, he's canceling 
his $100 gift to the school. He says that it's an incubation lab for virulent anti-Jewish hatred. I think he's right. I think that's a fairly accurate description of the environment. So he's pulling his dough. Uh, I think that's great. He's the founder and CEO of Stone Ridge Management, and he donated to the university in 2017. It consisted of partnership units in the firm, which are now valued at $100 million. Incredible. How do you alienate a donor of $100 million unless you're just dumb, honestly, which is what I think happened here? The other one, you know, I read their account the other day. His account is Bill Ackman. And Bill Ackman is a, a Harvard graduate. And he says that he's pulling his money. He's no longer going to donate to the university. And it is a significant amount of money as well. I don't know that the amount has been disclosed. But he's a billionaire. He is calling for the president, Liz McGill, of the University of Pennsylvania, to step down today. Step down today. And... I think that's because she not only refused to answer the questions, but her so-called apology was feeble. It was weak. Why can't they just come out and say, hey, I'm sorry. I apologize. I messed up. I've rethought this. Here's what we're going to do. No, we didn't get that. I, I feel like the public just yearns so much for folks in positions of power like this, be it a politician, a university, a president, uh, the CEO of a major corporation. When you mess up, just admit it, man. I just I feel like you'd endear yourselves, yourself more to the public who is outraged about whatever happened just to say, I blew it. Why can't they do that? We've gotten to that point in society where it's, It's just considered taboo to apologize, to admit wrongdoing, admit a mistake. And you should always do that with a follow-up that here's what we're going to do to to rectify the situation. It also turns out that the Wharton School of Business, which is really the prominent school there at the University of Pennsylvania, it's where Donald Trump graduated that the Wharton School of Business Board has written the uh, the folks that run the whole university demanding an immediate change of leadership, demanding that President McGill step down immediately. So I guess the reason I'm I'm kind of focused on this a little bit is because maybe for the first time we're seeing significant, I I consider $100 million significant, significant backlash and a a bit of drawing the line in the sand and retaliation against this insane DEI movement that has engulfed America's university environment. 
and the just blatant hypocrisy uh, with regard to this issue, that because it's Jewish people in Israel, it, it's, it's context. But if it were any other demographic, it, there's just no, no thought about it. It's just immediate. You're gone. And that's, that's what bothers. And then we, we've got to get back to consistent application of uh, those views, those policies. And we, we've strayed away from that uh, for sure. The Chicago Teachers Union, (laughs) oh gosh, this is another example of blatant hypocrisy. Well, it turns out that the president, Stacey Davis Gates, she owes the city of Chicago $5,579 in unpaid water, sewer, and trash bills. That's as of a couple of weeks ago, early November. Now, here's the deal. Ms. Gates takes home a salary of 289000 bucks a year, yet she can't pay her utility bills. No, she's refusing to pay. This is really what it is. Not that she can't. She has elected not to pay those bills. She started a, play, a payment plan. To get current on her utility. And it's not clear, according to reports, where she stands on this. This is just incredible hypocrisy because she was pushing for, quote, wealthy taxpayers, just like the president, to pay their fair share. So in one day, in a span of 24 hours, we have a report of the president's son who... Now we learn owes $1.4 million of taxes. And it wasn't because he didn't have the money to pay it. He just decided to spend it on other stuff. Like, what would you say, hookers earlier? Alcohol. A whole long list of stuff you don't need, honestly. And we have the same thing here by a hypocritical teachers' union president. These are the same people that, that uh, such as her, that are constantly blasting and accosting folks who legitimately earn wealth, who pay their bills. And I would put it into that category, Donald Trump, who is entrenched in this, uh, this lawsuit in New York. That where they the attorney general claims he overvalued assets, yet those who use those valuations in making loans or insuring insuring his property said, "No, we got paid back, and we're happy. He's a good customer. We made money off of Mr. Trump. This is crazy. So you follow the law, you do the right thing, you get drug into court." And then you got Hunter Biden. It takes five years to finally get something going there. And now we learn about this progressive teachers' union president. But is this not, Rhino, consistent with almost all these dang union higher-ups? 
they're all crooked like that, are they not? I mean, they all try to play this common blue-collar worker role, and it's horse hockey. They're all ridiculously overcompensated, and that's just their salary. No telling what all the bennies look like and all the other folks whom they just shake down for about anything they want because of their power. And that's what people, I think, are so sick about. I'm one of them. Honestly, I don't care about party. It doesn't really matter. Just right is right, wrong is wrong. We we got to get back to that simple, common principle. We're stepping aside for a break with the great Boston bumping us out of this segment. It's middays. We're in the Element Well Studio. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Call up Trudy on the telephone. And a letter in the mail. Till I'm hung up in Dallas. They won't let me out of this jail. Welcome back, everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi. You shared with me yesterday, Rhino, a story about uh, the son of a U.S. senator. And and you and I, this was after the show, and you and I wondered, is this going to get media attention? I've seen a little bit written about it. Uh, Can you share what's going on there? Yeah, there was a story out of North Dakota. Uh, Senator Kramer's son apparently, allegedly, stole an SUV and during the high-speed pursuit hit or struck an officer that was trying to put out uh, stop strips, and the deputy was killed. Yeah, it's uh, it did hit the AP uh, last night. Uh, Kevin Kramer is an excellent U.S. senator. He's... Uh, Got tremendous economic and business savvy sense. This is 42-year-old son. Manslaughter. Uh, really bizarre story. And, gosh, the senator did put out a statement uh, essentially ex- expressing his, uh, his concern for the officer and, and their family, gosh, it's just unbelievable that something like this could happen. But it, it did. He said he grieves with the family of the hero who tried to help. That's just, gosh, man, really sad story. Really, really sad. Let's see here. Thomas and Greenwood says uh, we just need to fire everybody in the government. <laughs> he said the best raise for most state employees to find a job elsewhere that pays more for the state to end the service they worked in altogether. So, Thomas, you you advocate for ending education, corrections, environmental protection, justice, law enforcement, Medicaid. I know you'd be for that one. That's nine hundred million a year. I mean, serious question. And it, and this is this comes up a lot. And it it when you talk about reducing spending it's got to be done from a government public sector perspective with some some nuance got to be realistic and practical about it as well that again that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities to reduce it but 
when do you ever say, okay, we, we've accomplished something from the standpoint of reducing? And how do you do that when you're dealing with inflation and the cost of what the government procures continues to rise when you've got workers who are also dealing with that in their households? And you're right. They may just say to the government, I can't work here anymore. The pay's too low. Problem is, is there a place they can go work and earn more, given the skill set that they have, given where they live? All of those are factors. Um, so that's a, it's a problem. He says, PERS wouldn't be an issue today if Republicans had kept that promise of cutting spending and reducing government. Show me the math on that. Back in 2009, what do you mean, Thomas? That's, that's not true. That has nothing to do with with PERS. In fact, I've explained this, and I did in the article. The unfortunate reality is if you cut government workers, fewer thus fewer paying into the system, that exacerbates PERS' financial difficulties. It's quite the opposite. It makes it more difficult. Let's see here, also on the ceasefire text line. If I refuse to pay my water bill, says Trey and Vaden, they turn mine off. I agree. I not, and he says, so who's at fault? The utility company for allowing her not to pay her bill without turning off her water? It's the same thing in the city of Jackson. I mean, that's, that's well documented. Millions of dollars of unpaid bills took no action. Heck, they have a hard time figuring out who owes what and getting that right. Countless examples of that from residents in the city of Jackson. It does seem like they're this special person they sent down, Hennepin, Hennepin, pardon me, is making some progress on that, at least. But that's been a problem in the city of Jackson. But yeah, in this case, it's Chicago. I just believe they looked the other way. It's what I did. Oh, we can't, we can't press the head of the teachers' union for to pay their bills, even though they make 289000 bucks a year. Gary in the Berg says, with respect to these university presidents that testified this past week on anti-Semitism on their respective campuses, they are only apologizing because of the money, not because they actually believe they are wrong. These schools need to change leaders. Well, first, I agree with you, Gary. They need to change leaders. But secondly, honestly, Rhino, I didn't find their statements to be what I would term as an apology. I didn't see it that way. They may think it is. And I can tell you, the people that are withholding their money, they didn't feel like it was an apology. They never came out and said, I'm sorry. That To me, that's kind of the minimal requirement for uh, an apology. And, and to define someone's response there, post a boo-boo, as an apology. How about, I'm sorry. Is that so dang hard? Man. Fox News, Super Talk News, and then an hour left of midday. Stay with us. And now, now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi.
everyone. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Well studio on this Friday, y'all. So I need to make an apology, having just discussed my frustration with folks in uh, positions, high-profile positions, not making an apology. Just about an hour and a half ago, according to the the Harvard Crimson, that would be the school newspaper, Harvard president Claudine Gay has what I believe made an apology, what I would describe as an apology. She said, quote, I am sorry. That does it for me. Words matter. This was during an interview with the Harvard Crimson, the school newspaper. Quote from Ms. Gay, when words amplify distress and pain, I don't know how you could feel anything but regret. Wow. You think somebody had a little sales meeting with her between her testimony on the Hill and her interview with the Harvard Crimson? I'm thinking, yes. A little bit of chewing going on. Yeah, exactly. Maybe thinking her cushy gig there might be in jeopardy. And, of course, alienating huge donors on top of that. Well, so I applaud now, Miss Gay, for apologizing. Question is, those are words. We accept that at face value. Apology accepted. Good job. Now, will you change behavior? Will you change policy? Will you speak out against those who are engaged in this anti-Semitism over-the-top rhetoric? Because if you don't, your apology is invalid. It has Rings no hollow. Exactly. No meaning. So we have to wait and see. I hope so. I, I hope that she will return to her campus. And I'm sure she's already there, but start introducing into the environment there the same feelings, the same position. I I hope that's the case. And that she will, if if I were her, I think I'd go in front of the entire student body, make some statements. Maybe it's a video that she produces probably be a better idea to commun- or just an open letter okay to communicate with the student body might be a bit of an inconvenience on everybody to get them all in a, well that's true in, I, I in the arena or the stadium i guess i'm i'm thinking uh, a, a live web conference event something like that that's recorded you could view later something to that effect uh, nonetheless i think she should direct her apology and state her positions which I hope would include some changes. We won't tolerate this. It doesn't matter. You call for genocide of of anybody. It's unacceptable. It's against the student code of conduct. It's simple, easy, right? And almost every, if not every university, has a code of conduct. Oh, yeah. That's fairly common. And, yeah, this clearly violates that, clearly. Not even close. And, but it's nonsense about, well, it depends on the context. Like you're this free speech absolutionist all of a sudden. No, it doesn't. 
There's there's no no confusion there. No no contextualization. Now that's um that's different than being critical, for example, of of others or a demographic or I, it doesn't matter a group or an individual. That's a little different. You're you're calling for it's human atrocity. Honestly, I mean it's you're calling for the death. No, that's that doesn't need to be contextualized in the most horrific way, by the way. And we're talking about civilians, not not soldiers, not members of the military, or in this case, the IDF. So I, I applaud her, and we'll see how that works out with the uh, the big alumni that are scheduled to to donate. Certainly, at a minimum, couldn't she? Maybe get her her team together. Hey, this is the way we're going to handle this going forward. I don't know. Maybe have a one-on-one meeting with the members of the faculty or administration that also engaged in this anti-Semitism activity, anti-Semitic activity. It seems to me like that, at a minimum, would make sense. I mean, she's the president of the university. She should be able to have a meeting, be it one-on-one or as a group. But I, I would do it one-on-one with those engaged in those activities. would make sense to me. Okay, so I just wanted to update that and correct the record. That's, that's brand new. On the C Spire text line, you were exactly right about apologizing. Years ago, I read an article about what customers most want from a business when there's been a mistake, the top request, admitting the mistake, even if there's no goodwill given beyond that. Instead, our society tries to deflect and finger point. Yeah, it's a good point, and it, it not only defect and finger point, uh, deflect and finger point, but also justify. You see that a lot. Well, it happened because of this. Nobody really cares. And... You know, I, I just think back on my business experience, and that was always the case. We we strive to never have that situation, honestly. And the only time that I would draw a line is there were a couple of cases. I mean, it was it was pretty rare where someone would be unruly and abusive to a member of my team, and which was unacceptable. And I don't really care what the situation was, even if we. Even if we erred, didn't matter. That was that was unnecessary, and I always felt like I had to come to their defense, no matter what. Now we're going to fix your problem. We're going to take care of it, but we can't be abusive to people like that. We won't do it to you ever, and you shouldn't do it to our folks. And sometimes you have to, I think, draw the line. I just felt like that was. The prudent thing to do, but I but I agree with you in general, though that we just we we we've sort of we've ostracized apologies <laughs> what we've done, and it's I think folks would find that they would build goodwill and and uh, with people. Now there's some people that would see I told you I told you, and they'd seize on that. But you know what? If it enables you to sleep at night and clear your conscience, then in my view, it's worth it. If it's the right thing to do. And it could be here that this Harvard president, she may get 
retribution from those on her campus that are mad that she apologized that anti-Semitic activity is occurring in her midst at her school. That's possible. Hopefully she'll stand strong that it doesn't matter. What you did was wrong, and this is the right thing to do. So hope that's the way. Uh, let's see here. Oh, Jay from the Res tells me that my friend Jim Walker was once his boss. How about that? Yeah, I didn't know that at uh, Wildlife Fisheries. Yeah, on the C Spire text line, some trivia. William Hopper, who played Paul Drake on Perry Mason, was a former UDT diver during World War II. These UDT teams are better known today as the SEAL teams. And I actually saw something on MeTV where you can catch Perry Mason reruns. You know, sometimes they'll they'll show some trivia like that about the, the actors. And that came – and I didn't know that after all these years, honestly. Because I remember Perry Mason as a kid. My parents liked it. Um, but I, I didn't know that. I appreciate you sharing that. And I, but I did see that in MeTV. Uh, had had one of those kind of interesting tidbit sort of facts when they're promoting the show, of course. Kind of pop-up video factoid style. Yeah, that sort of deal. I thought she was rather condescending with her statement, says Johnny and McComb. And, I, and I'm not sure if Johnny is talking about the Harvard president. I guess so, because that's who we were talking about at that point. Yeah, I, I didn't actually see it, Johnny, or uh, vi- the video. I just read the report, and it it's very recent, as you know. I felt like the president of Pennsylvania, McGill, I did see her video, which we shared with you earlier. She looked uncomfortable, honestly. She looked a little awkward, like almost forced to do this sort of against her will? You're shaking your head. You saw this thing? It it looked a little certainly different than the way she kind of sat upright, you know, and and was was quick and almost proud to say, well, it depends on the context. I mean, you remember that when she was testifying? But in her apology, I don't know. Well, what she, I guess, may consider an apology, I don't. Stick around, folks. We're in the Element Well studio. It's middays. Coming right back. This program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. request line a little Brian Adams the Canadian that's probably from 92 93 something like that I'm gonna guess they've been a little earlier what do you see 84 gosh I missed that one that was the the different I think that was his original album if I'm not mistaken that was on we appreciate that so there was um, 
I would love to work for the state. I guess you need connections to get a state job on the ceasefire tax line. Gosh, I don't, I don't think so. There are plenty of um, opportunities, I believe, that um, you know what? You don't need any connections that I'm aware of. Where they are looking, uh, I know teachers is an area for sure that we seem to be behind uh, a bit on. There are opportunities. Hmm. Park and Rec was always a good place to go for a summer job. Yeah, that's true. I don't think you could ever appease students, says Dan in Hattiesburg. It's like the inmates running the prison instead of the warden. (laughs) That's absolutely true. The instructors and professors, they're the ones teaching this stuff to students. They need to be held accountable and follow the code of conduct. And that's absolutely accurate on the ceasefire tax line. And, in fact, as you know, Rhino, the code of conduct of a university applies to everyone at the university. Supposedly. That's not just, yeah. Well, it's it's not, it's not qualified as being uh, applicable right. to one group. Uh, if you, In theory, it's all-encompassing. In practice, right. it tends to have carve-outs. It's supposed to be all workers. That includes faculty, staff, administration, others who, of course, support the university, and then students. It's supposed to apply to all. It should. And, it, and it's the code of conduct, if you look at some of those, they're, they're, they're fine. I mean, they're reasonable. They, they express... What a code of conduct should look like on a university campus. It's kind of sad in my view. You even have to put it down in writing because it's sort of common sense stuff, right? Don't be a fool. That's pretty much what it says. Uh, Usually you'll see some statement about academic freedom is uh, is one thing you'll see and, and respecting that. Respect for others usually is in there. And, of course, that takes on many different uh, tangents, I think is one way to put it. Different people define that differently, I guess, is the point. So it it's, all goes back to this, this lack of consensus in society on what's good and bad, what's evil and what's noble. That's, we've gotten to that point, and it's... Look no further than our inability to reach consensus on the genders that we have as part of the human species. We can't seem to get any rallying around that. In fact, quite the opposite. And if you don't accept that, well, then you might be found in violation of a code in conduct. Code of conduct. There's no telling. All that stuff's crazy. Neil from Pontotoc says to the listener who said they want to work for the state but can't seem to get hired. Or they didn't say that. They just questioned do they need connections. Neil and Pontotoc says you could go to work for MDOT next week. That probably is true. I think that is a good point. Uh, let's see. Who has better bumper music? You or Borky? Well, that... not to brag, but I did load most of the music he plays. So. <laughs> I've been doing it a little longer. <laughs> Jerry in Pontotoc says, if Liz McGill, that would be the president of the University of Pennsylvania, 
Is their mascot still the Quakers, by the way? Didn't it used to be the Quakers? Or did they cancel that? If Liz McGill had said the same thing about blacks, she would have been fired before she left the Capitol. Yeah, they're still the Quakers. Okay. I didn't know that survived. That's good to know. Yeah, I agree with you, Jerry. That's what we've been talking about is it's sort of selective. The code of conduct is selective. I think that's what it really all comes down to. Well, it has to be contextualized with respect to Israel and the Jewish people. But there's no contextualization vis-a-vis other demographics. It takes about half a second to elicit that response. You're canceled. You're fired. You're gone. You're out of here. It does look Misgendering like... Misgendering is violence, but calling for actual <laughs> genocide is not. That is, that's so true. I mean, just imagine that that's where we are in this country. And that's what's being taught to our future leaders. They, unbelievable. They would teach you, for example, when you in business school, when you're drafting your your handbook, your employee handbook, handbook, which would include code of conduct provisions. Typically, you're likely to see an extensive discussion of pronoun usage. You're likely to see that in a modern company today. Unbelievable policy around that and consequences for misgendering, mispronouncing some. What did you say the uh, a minute ago, my esteemed colleague? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Because, oh, I mean, if, gosh. The, it seems the vast majority of these people are suffering from mental disorder and they are crying out for attention. So when you misgender them, you are giving them the negative attention they crave. Then they have leverage over you because HR is going to take their side. So they they get this power trip. By using my esteemed colleague, you remove that power from their power trip. Unbelievable. Because can you really go to HR and go, he keeps calling me my esteemed colleague. Is that that an insult? Well, no. Uh, I I like in the old days it was my learned colleague. (laughs) Uh, on the ceasefire text line, uh, someone has a different take on the Hunter Biden situation than we do. Oh, gosh, there's a bunch of stuff here. Uh, they must have practiced this. I know. this. Uh, did you just say it's okay to commit fraud as long as everyone makes money? I did? Did nope. I say that? No, I've, I've never given a pass. What I said was... I'm agnostic as far as party, power, position, doesn't matter. Commit fraud is fraud. Wrong is wrong. Pay the price. Trump has been found civilly guilty of fraud. He broke the rules, but because people make money, then it's okay. No, 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 no. I see where he's going with this or she. I don't know who it is. It's someone with Trump derangement syndrome that has... A false idea of who we are, what we represent, and what we argue. But because they suffer from Trump derangement syndrome, and they're obviously willfully ignorant of reality, they've spent time in their day coming up with paragraphs of nonsense to send into the ceasefire text line to try to refute something that wasn't even said on the air. (laughs) 
So, you see, here's how it works. This is what's missing here. If Trump, if Mr. Trump overvalued, inflated the value of his assets, and in doing so, party or parties were harmed, I'd have a problem with that. But when Deutsche Bank, as we shared a couple of weeks ago, testified in court and said, no, not only did we not lose anything in our relationship with Mr. Trump as a customer, he was quite, I think they used the word rhino, lucrative. Meaning, we loaned him a bunch of money, he paid it back on time in accordance with the terms and conditions of the loan agreement. That's what I said. So this this totally politically motivated AG action to drag him into court on some crazy New York law that they're trying to apply here that says, hey, you overvalued your assets, but they've yet to produce a victim. That's the point I'm making. Now, you may have a different point of view, and I respect that. But I, I can tell you this from my, I just got to share this, from my business experience, man, I can't tell you the number of times when I'd be dealing with complex contracts as a seller. My lawyers would always say, you know, you got to have a victim here. You got to have damages. Someone has to have incurred damages when we were crafting some of these complex, unique, customized contracts. And we were trying to work through that. What would those damages potentially be? And he always said, if there's no damages, there's no wrongdoing. It also always impressed upon me, I'll save it for after the break, a dis- clear distinction on wrongdoing legally. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. So the latest news I could find on Liz McGill, the president of the University of Pennsylvania, is that she is she's being pressured to resign, and she is expected to be asked today to step down. I don't know that it's imminent at this point, but that is the expectation. Appreciate folks for weighing in on that. We had some folks also, Rhino, telling us about other job opportunities in the state of Mississippi, Neil from Pontotoc said, of course, and this is to someone who said, I'd like to go work for the state, but it seems like you got to have connections to get hired. Uh, Mike in Simpson County says, fire departments across the state are hiring most or state jobs which fall under PERS. Jim in the Delta reminds, check with the Mississippi State Personnel Board. Yes, absolutely. Which they do have a website. You can search for jobs there. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So it's. Uh, I, I think there are plenty of opportunities. I mean, it's when you look at 
the state government in general, just the size, you just have natural attrition where uh, folks retire or move on, and that that, uh, creates job openings. I mean, the number... And this is where where Thomas is, is seems to ignore the facts, but the number of folks working in state government in the public sector in the state is, is down over the last 10 years. That's one of the reasons PERS is facing financial challenges, because the number of workers to retirees and the overall number of workers is down. Well, let's see here. On the ceasefire text line, we had some other information or other texts as well that I thought were good. Uh, Bob and Summit said they would never have done that to Muslims, just talking about the, uh, the any sort of anti-Muslim rhetoric, for example, would not be tolerated on college campuses. It would be considered a violation of their code of conduct. I think you could apply that, honestly, Bob, to a number of other groups and and uh, in the identity politics of the day. I think you're right. It's just astonishing to me that for some reason Jews and Israel don't seem to be offered the same protection. I don't get it. Uh, other than I, I guess they've Got everybody parsed out into these nice little buckets, which, by the way, is a key tenet of Marxism, is to divide society thusly. Uh, Originally, it was based on uh, economic status, but I think uh, that has been extended in uh, quite a bit into other personal profile characteristics. Rhett and Ridgeland, the current atmosphere towards Jewish people can send one off into the realm of tinfoil conspiracies. I got a notification back in October that my data was stolen from 23andMe along with other people with, uh, how do you say it there, Rhino? Ashkenzi? Jewish DNA. I hope I pronounced that correct there, Rhett. So, Rhett, you may be aware that 23andMe did, in fact, experience a a breach, penetration, nefarious cyber penetration. And lots of information has been gathered as a result of that breach by nefarious actors. So I don't know that that's specific. Ashkenazi. Okay, thank you. Well, that makes sense, looking at the spelling. Um but so that that did occur. I don't know if you saw that, Rhino, 23andMe. They did experience a cyber attack, and they did admit and acknowledge, yeah, lots of that information that they store was obtained as part of that. haven't seen or heard much beyond that. Joe, uh, John in Pontotoc says Ole Miss is trying to, by hiring a professor that's giving a class on how to handle law enforcement. Hmm. Johnny and Tupelo, Mr. G, which do you think caused the most debt and caused more economic problems, 9-11 or the COVID pandemic? Well, I don't think 9-11 was a direct contributor. It didn't really change the trajectory of of, uh, revenue and spending to any significant amount. 
that contributed to our debt, the COVID pandemic by far, honestly, overshoots everything else. I mean, if you just look at the single largest year of deficit produced in our history by a long shot, it was 2020. That was a $3.1 trillion deficit. And if you go forward from there, uh, the trajectory of spending since then simply overshoots revenue significantly. And we're looking at uh, a nearly $8 trillion of deficits and new debt added under the current president by the time he exits office or certainly finishes his his uh, his term that's the trajectory that we are on at this point pm squared says no more taxes higher gas taxes will not equal better roads they already get way more money than they need to keep our roads up uh it's just pure government waste I really can't comment on that. Uh, I'm not a fan of raising gas taxes until we see more support for such a need. And at this point, I don't think that I've seen sufficient evidence that it's needed, that we don't have the funds we need to maintain uh, roads and bridge bridges in the state. And, and, of course, we're talking more about state infrastructure than we are county and city. The gas tax doesn't go there, but I but I hear you. What else we got here, Karen in Oxford? Isn't it sad that our country was founded on the freedom of religious and political tyranny, and now we are a society where Jewish and Christians are the persecuted class? Good is evil, men or women, and you can't say Merry Christmas, but you can yell Allah Akbar. Yeah, and so to, along those lines, Karen, it's there is. I think some truth in what you're saying, you may have seen that out there in California, Gavin Newsom, the governor, canceled the public capital Christmas tree lighting, opting for a virtual event because of planned protests. That is sad. And so it looked like it was a bit scripted and staged, I guess which is fine, but it was a a video event, a live stream video event, if you will, where they hit the switch, made some remarks. He, and, and by the way, I didn't know this until I read the report yesterday. His wife, whose name escapes me at this point, now I'm calling uh, her his wife, she is referred to in the report I read as the first partner. <laughs> Have you seen this? Well, you can't use gendered language. I'm serious. You can't say first lady or first gentleman. It's first partner. I'm serious. I thought that was bizarre. Why I do, I don't know. But it's uh, because we shouldn't be surprised at anything these days. But she is referred to as the first partner. What a joke. And, of course, noticeably missing in the first partner and the governor's remarks as they're building up to the ultimate lighting of the tree is Christmas. 
season's greetings, happy holidays, absent, noticeably, Merry Christmas. The word Christmas. It's a dang Christmas tree. That's what it is. It's unbelievable. Just going out of their way to accommodate. Why? I I just I'm just blown away that every day it just seems to be more garbage like this. I wish I could I, I think the report I read about this, no surprise. It may have been the Sacramento Bee. Sacramento, of course, the capital city of California, and that's the big newspaper. It was a California publication where they referred to her as the first partner. Oh, my gosh. That's, uh, that's, that pretty much just epitomizes, does it not, the craziness in the whole dang country right there. First partner. Heaven forbid we call her the first lady. What happened to the days where you were respectful if you referred to a, an adult female as a lady? What happened to those days? That's what my parents taught me to do. We don't do that anymore. Can't be saying sir or ma'am. That's gendered. Oh, my gosh. All right. We're coming back with a final segment on Middays in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. Back with you, Midday's final segment on this... Friday, y'all. <laughs> With these Harvard, MIT, and UPenn comments about genocide of Jews, why don't we invite these Jewish students from Ivy League schools to come to Mississippi for college? It can happen. I, I've seen uh, lots of interviews with students and parents who say, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're either enrolled in the Ivy League schools, or this, it's not just Ivy League schools, but schools where you're seeing these, these um, pro-Hamas, anti-Semitic protests, looking at making a change. But more importantly, sadly, uh, I've seen parents of students who have been qualified to be admitted uh, and been approved for admission into these prestigious Ivy League schools that are now thinking about it, having second thoughts. And that's terrible when you think about these were supposed to be the finest uh, educational institutions on the planet. Supposed to be. Yeah, before all this blew up, you you looked at getting a letter of acceptance from Harvard with anticipation. Yeah, big time. And glee. For that to be supplanted with hesitation says a lot about the statements that were made on Capitol Hill. Totally agree. I mean, that should be uh, just a a moment of exuberance, of uh, massive happiness, celebration, all the above. I hear you, though, and I I do think they're looking. Also, lots of folks have told us, uh, again, to... Uh, the person on our text line said they'd like to go work for the state, but they felt like they needed connections. Jay from the rest says Parchment is hiring. That's true. We hear that all the time. 
We're we're hiring here at Mississippi Department of Rehab Services, says William and Brandon. So Gary in the Berg says, had enough of making well-thought-out, reasonable, provable arguments that get totally refuted by Democrat, quote, bumper sticker phrases such as, we are all immigrants, or that's xenophobic. Yeah, a lot of that. I agree with you, Gary. And, and, um, and, and there are a lot of powerful people with a voice in positions of power and control, such as university presidents that just seem to cave, just like CEOs, just seem to cave all the time. Anti-Semitism, says Bob and Starkville, is dismissed by left-wingers because most Jews are white. I do think there's a lot of truth to that. With regards to budget talks, there's never any consideration to help support the volunteer fire departments across the state, except for the rural fire truck grants. The volunteers are suffering to purchase much-needed equipment. Other states support them much better than we do in Mississippi. We do this with no pay to help protect our communities. DJ and Summit says money is just a commodity. I'm willing to pay more to keep our kids and grandkids safe on these dangerous roads. Jones County Board of Supervisors says Jeff in Hattiesburg voted Monday to increase garbage pickup 25% from $14 per month to $17.50. Guess they're anticipating the PERS employer increase for next year. Interesting. Also on the ceasefire text line, referring to the press release about the governor of California lighting the old Christmas tree. I'm calling it a Christmas tree. We fa- I found the actual uh, media source that uh, where I saw this, the first lady being referred to as the first partner. It is on the official governor's website. It's their their news release, their press release from December 5th entitled Governor Newsom and First Partner Siebel Newsom to host the 92nd Annual California State Capitol Virtual Tree Lighting Ceremony. Notice again, and I, I scan the entire presser here, the word Christmas is absent. It does not appear. This person says, bet he ain't her first partner. <laughs> Several years ago, Walmart employees were instructed to not to say Merry Christmas, or to not say, even in response to a customer wishing them a Merry Christmas. One told me during an exchange that she would get in trouble if she spoke those words. I told her she needed to get a new job. And it's not just Walmart. That There was a time period. I'm not sure if that's the case. Seems like there's been some pullback on these policies from these major retailers that had implemented such policy. Don't want to offend anybody by saying, you know, even in my experience... Even folks that I've subsequently learned are Jewish. They just laugh it off. Uh, you know, if somebody said Happy Hanukkah to me, I'm not Jewish. I, I don't celebrate or participate in that holiday. I mean, I'm not going to get... we got to get away from this just, you know, just caving right into a well, little... Well, both sides need to take a chill pill. Totally agree. Like, quit walking around with a chip on your shoulder, but... Quit getting upset if somebody has the temerity to not want to celebrate Christmas. I agree with that as well. Man, just live and let live and 
Find real problems. That's not a problem. Somebody says that to you. One way or another, or doesn't say to you. But I agree, I don't like to, with Ray and Long Beach here, I don't like the policies. Uh, and you just don't know about that person's personal situation. Can they go get another job? Folks, we have run out of time today. Thank you for joining us. Back with you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.